We live in a broken world, and we are broken people. Where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what he calls us to do. Exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad to see you. Uh, Last week, I was listening to a a guy from the Ukraine talk about the Operation Christmas Shoebox. And he was describing how as a young boy, he had to share a toothbrush with all the members of his family. And he talked about how humbling that was. And, uh, and I was like, oh, wow, that's, uh, he was going, describing all that. And then the Operation Shoebox people came, and uh, he got his very own toothbrush for the first time in his life. And he felt like the goodness of God. He was just overwhelmed by that, just that one little thing that we probably take for granted. Uh, but then he heard the gospel presented. And he realized how much the grace of God had touched him in, in more profound ways. And I just want to commend this ministry. They do a great job uh, not just giving stuff out to folks, but really making sure that they also get the gospel. And so uh, be sure to grab a box and fill it up. And, and nothing is too small or insignificant in that box. Uh, well, I want to begin this morning. And have you just ask yourself, has there ever been a time, do you recall a time, when you became hyper-aware of your need for God, just had a moment of clarity, like hyper-aware. Maybe it was when you were seeking God for the first time, and God says that, you know, if you'll seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. Maybe you were feeling the weight of a sin or failure in your life, and you were just crying out to God for some kind of relief or restoration. Maybe you were pleading for God's mercy or for healing in some significant way. In Nehemiah 9, the Israelites assemble in the city, and it tells us that they were fasting, they were wearing sackcloth, and they were putting dust on their head. There's this moment that they have where they become hyper-aware of their need for God. And so fasting is when you become so focused on God that even your physical necessities kind of fade into the background. Your need for food, your need for water, uh, whatever the next thing that was pressing, it all gets set aside because you have this focus. And per custom, these Israelites uh, set aside their comfortable clothing, you know, cotton or whatever, and they put on crude sackcloth. So they're even setting aside simple comforts. And they toss dust over their head which was like symbolically throwing your own funeral. They realized that because of their wickedness and their sin, they'd be just as good as dead. And yet there they were. They realized that God had brought them to a special moment in time. And so they were mourning and they were in a place of repentance and and they were being overwhelmed with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is when God shows you something. He shows you your need. He shows you the reality of who you are. Not to condemn, not to destroy you, but to restore you. The devil doesn't give us any kind of godly, redemptive purpose. He just condemns. 
But they were being shown something and becoming so hyper aware of things. And it was so that they'd be restored. So this is a very special moment in time where the wall's been built, but now the lives of people are being rebuilt. As they stood assembled in the square there in Jerusalem, they rededicated themselves to God. They began confessing their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. Now, we do the latter one better than the former one. We like to talk about everybody else's sins and how we've been scarred and, and damaged by the sins of our ancestors, our mom, our dad, all the, you know. But they confessed their own sins as well. And they stood reading the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And then they would spend another quarter of the day just responding in confession and worship to all that they'd read and heard. The Levites stood up on raised platforms and the men were crying out and wailing loudly to the Lord their God. When have you seen men cry out and wail loudly for God because they're so acutely aware that they, their family, their nation needs God? If you ever witnessed such a thing, you wouldn't soon forget it. So do you recall a time when you were hyper aware of God's presence or your need for God? Can you think of such a moment in your life? Maybe not as dramatic as what we read in Nehemiah 9, but no less significant. Now, using Nehemiah 9, uh, I'd like you to find this chapter in your Bible. You can go to the table of contents in your Bible. Find Nehemiah chapter 9. If you have a device, pull up your Bible app right now, find Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to read through this chapter. I'm not going to put all the verses on the screen because there's so many of them. But these verses just read naturally and they're kind of self-explanatory in some ways. But I want to, to take this chapter and give you a window into what true spiritual revival looks like and what God does by his spirit within us as he revives us. Now, I want to say, I, I don't think we can manufacture revival. For example, we could look at this chapter and we could try to mimic everything that the Israelites were doing. And I don't know if you've ever had someone stand, you know, tell you to stand up and bow down and raise your hands. And sometimes we try to think that there's a program or a way that we can direct people into revival. But it doesn't work so well. Revival isn't generated from the outside in. It's generated from the inside out. And it's generated by the Spirit of God as he moves and works and brings us to new places of awareness. And I want to describe how God's Spirit is at work in this chapter. Now, one of the first things that the Spirit of God does is gives us a hyper-awareness of God's supremacy. He gives us a hyper-awareness of God's supremacy. In Nehemiah 9, the Levites stand before the people and they lead them in a very powerful prayer. And that's what the whole chapter of Nehemiah 9 is. It's a prayer. And they begin this prayer pointing to the supremacy of God over all things. The Levites say, blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens, with all the stars, the earth, and all that's on it, and the seas, and all that's in them. You give life 
to all of it. And all the stars of heaven even worship you. Now I read that, but that takes on a whole other level of meaning when I start looking at these amazing photos uh, from the latest telescope out in space and they're showing like the pillars of creations and galaxies colliding. I mean, in Genesis 1 and 2, that's what, in the beginning, God. That's kind of like the first point of awareness, don't you think? It's Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's Romans 1 type stuff, you know, which declares that God's divine nature and power are clearly seen in creation through that which has been made so that we're without excuse. What's it look like for us to invite God to bring us to this awareness of his supremacy? What is it for you personally that most evokes your sense of the wonder of God, the supremacy of God? as creator of heavens and earth, what is it that brings you? There is a person after first service that said for them, and I agreed with them, just sometimes looking up at the stars. But there's so many things. I love science. I like reading about science. Because, you know, you read about how complex and, and how perfectly everything is formed and functioned and designed. And it's like, you know, it brings me just face to face with the creator, the marvel of it all. You know, beholding the image of God, broken though it often is, in the face of fellow man, just being with people, you, you sense the goodness and supremacy and greatness of God, that he created us and has wired us up to love and to, and to, and to be his people. All these things. When have you been brought to a hyper-awareness of the supremacy of God? The Spirit of God also gives us a hyper-awareness of God's faithfulness. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, the Levites continue praying. And the thing I want you to listen for is this simple pronoun, you. Whenever you see the word you in Nehemiah chapter 9, it's about God and it's something good. And whenever you see the word they, it's about something bad and dark that humans are doing. And this, this play on words, you, they, you, they, you're going to see this in a minute. But in the beginning, the Levites say, they make, it's like they're making a list. They're rehearsing the history that they've had with God, which is something we should all learn to do. And they say, you, the Lord our God, are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And you changed his name to Abraham. You're the God of Abraham, the great God of Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and you made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites and Hethites and Amorites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Girgashites. You are going to give that land to, to his descendants and God, you fulfilled your promise. You are righteous. You saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. You divided the sea before them, and they crossed through it on dry ground. You hurled their enemies, their pursuers, into the depths like a stone into raging water. You led them like by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to illuminate the way that they needed to go. You came on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, 
good statutes and commands. You revealed your holy Sabbath to them. You gave them commands, statutes, and instructions through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water from the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and possess the land that you'd sworn to give them. Do you realize that in like eight verses that these Levites take the people all the way from Genesis, all the way through the books of the law, all the way through Joshua and the conquest of the land. And they're just pointing out this very simple but profound truth. Look how faithful and good God has been and righteous that he's been toward you. The Israelites had been reading the Bible for a quarter of the day. If they started in Genesis, they'd probably get through Joshua pretty quick. But they're reading through the Bible a quarter of the day, day after day. They're logging some real history there, right? You don't have to spend very long in the Word of God before the Bible begins to overwhelm you with the faithfulness of God. It starts on the first pages of Genesis. It expands during the life of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph and then Moses and and on forward into history. When God makes a promise, he always keeps it. And he keeps it in spectacular fashion again and again. When I read the Old Testament, it's God's track record. We have a history of his dealings with people in time and space, very specifically, very concretely. And he's demonstrated his faithfulness. How? Uh, so by the time we get to the New Testament, right, God's again fulfilling his promise in Christ. And the biggest promise is not just forgiveness of sin, but the gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. How might we suspect God's going to keep his promise if we don't have that whole sweeping history in view? How has God been faithful to his people? How has God been faithful to your people, your family? How has God been faithful to you throughout your life? In the New Testament, Paul even marvels how God is faithful even when we're not faithful. That's really the title and theme of the Old Testament. It's not about the faithfulness and goodness of the people of God. It's about the faithfulness and goodness of God himself despite the wickedness of his people. God's been faithful even when we have not been faithful. So here's a prayer pointing people to the supremacy of God, the greatness of God. Here's a prayer pointing people to God's faithfulness. And, and you can make a list, like, of all the ways God's been faithful to you. But their history is our history. We, can sh- we share this history of Nehemiah 9 as well with the Jewish people. The Spirit's going to give you hyper-awareness of God's faithfulness. It continues. The Spirit gives us hyper-awareness of God's mercy toward us. Of God's mercy toward us. In Nehemiah 9, verse 16, the Levites are praying And God's been faithful, but there's this conjunction, this little word in in the English language that everything seems to turn on in the Bible, and it's the word but. It's like, you, God, you, you, you're awesome, you're great, but it's like, oh, no, what are they going to do now, right? But they, our ancestors, acted arrogantly, but they became stiff-necked. And they didn't listen to your commandments. They refused to listen. They didn't remember the wonders that you performed them. You know, we always think 
that miracles will bolster our faith and sustain us for the long haul. They never do. We forget them. The signs and wonders, the most spectacular, great things forgotten. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. God was providing leadership through Moses, and they're like, take us back. We want to go back to the way things were in slavery. I want you to think for a moment, and this is an exercise of godly sorrow, not an exercise of self-condemnation, but when have you most failed God in your life? Maybe it's recently. Maybe it's right now. I want you to think of when you've most failed God and become most aware of your failure before God. This description of the people, they. Uh, but there's another conjunction. And every time that man throws a conjunction at God and God's goodness, but they, then God throws another conjunction right back at us, but God. And you see that in the New Testament too. Is Whenever there's a description of human depravity, no matter how grotesque and, and, and no matter how depraved and low and dark, but God in his mercy, but God in his grace, everything always hinges on God's mercy. Verse 17, they were wicked, they were stiff-necked, but you, God, are a forgiving, gracious, and compassionate God who's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. You know, God's not just... He's not handing out his grace like they hand out those little slices of meat at Subway, you know. They kind of peel them off and they, they're real stingy. With, you know. God gives you abounding, abundant grace, right? And even after uh, they had cast an image of a calf for themselves, and even after they said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt, even after they committed terrible blasphemies. You know what the unforgivable sin is, right? The one that deserves death almost immediately every time, blasphemy. Even though they committed terrible blasphemies, you did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, never stopped guiding them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct your people. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness. For 40 years you did this. They lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and established boundaries for them. They took possession of the promise. They took possession of the land of the king of Sihon and Heshbon and, and of the land of King Og and Bishon. You multiplied their descendants like you told Abraham. You multiplied their descendants like the stars of the sky. You brought them to the land that you told their ancestors to go in and possess. So their descendants, they went in and they took it. You subdued the Canaanites before them who inhabited the land before them and handed their kings and surrounding peoples over to them uh, for you to do as you please. You cap they captured fortified cities, fertile land, took possession of well-supplied houses, cisterns cut out of rock, vineyards, olive grove, fruit trees in abundance. They walked into prosperity. They ate and they filled, were filled and they became prosperous and they delighted in your great goodness. And here again, 
the but God part brings about this kind of like moment of flourishing and wonder and awesomeness and and. When have you found yourself overwhelmed by God's mercy and goodness in your life? And here we are again at this pinnacle of like, wow. Verse 26, but they. If, if I had everything, if I had the house and the, the, the means and the livelihood and the blessings, I, I would, then I'll worship God. Then I'll really be connected. No. But they were disobedient, and they rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs. They killed the prophets that you sent to warn them in order to turn back to you. They killed them. They committed terrible blasphemy still. And so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. Sometimes when we rebel against God and we have another God in mind, God gives us the God that we want for a while. He handed them over to their enemies for a while. But in their time of distress, though, they cried out to you, and you heard them, and you heard them from heaven. In your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers. You rescued them from the power of their enemies. You, you, you. Are you, are you catching on to what's going to happen? What's the next conjunction in the text? You don't even have it in front of you, but. But. As soon as they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them. Yet, when they cried out to you again, you stuck it to them. No. You heard from heaven. You rescued them many times in your compassion. You warned them to turn back to your law. But, ugh. They acted arrogantly. They wouldn't obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, which a person will live by if they do them. They stubbornly resisted and stiffened their necks and would not obey. And so it's the faithfulness of God, despite man's wickedness, that even though our character gives every reason to frustrate the living God, God doesn't disown his own character. He's faithful even when we're not faithful. If you don't read the Old Testament, and sense something of the supremacy, the faithfulness, and the profound mercy of God. I mean, how many times does God set his people up with everything they need in the Garden of Eden? You know, in the days of Noah, the, everything, wickedness is wiped out. They're given the whole earth to fill and subdue again. Every time there's a big reset, uh, Abraham, on and on, there's wickedness. But God keeps showing his faith. That cycle, how many times is that repeated in the Old Testament? Where God shows his faithfulness in spite of man's wickedness. How many times, uh, Steve, do you know how many times? Have you counted them up? You can't count them. They're innumerable. The mercy of God oozes across the pages of Scripture, and especially the Old Testament. But so also the failure of mankind to believe, the failure of mankind to become holy, the failure of mankind to be the people that God intended, the failure of man to declare God's name and bring him glory among the nations instead of, uh, you know, mockery. We're the ones doing the abandoning, not God. God does not abandon his covenant, his people. Now, this brings us to a final point of awareness 
And that is that the Spirit brings us to a hyper-awareness of God's righteousness. The righteousness of God conveys this idea that God has dealt rightly with us. He's dealt rightly with us. Not so much according to our character, but according to his own good and faithful and merciful character. God has dealt with us rightly. God is without fault in dealing with us. You know, we can look at our ancestors and we can say, hey, I've got a mother wound, I've got a father wound, I've got a grandparent wound, I'm part of this tribe or this people or this nation. And we can point and we can blame, right, the generations before. But you can't point at God and blame him. God is without fault in his dealings with us. You know, there's two stories that you can take hold of. There's the but you God story, which is about God's righteousness and right dealing. And there's the but they story, which is about human failures and human sabotage of the perfect will and plan of God. We can put God on trial, but the scriptures bring us to understand the righteousness of God. The scriptures show us the true story, the true, you know, when you were a little kid and your parents were disciplining you and loving you and doing all these things, how many times as a young kid did you misunderstand them? You had the wrong narrative. You thought you were the righteous one and they were the evil ones. But then later on when you set aside your childish ways and became an adult, you realize, oh, my parents were dealing with me rightly, righteously, with wisdom, with goodness and kindness and grace, and they wanted the best. I was being a child. When you read scripture, the righteousness of God, we become hyper aware. Oh, that's what God was doing during that season of my life. That's why that we start connecting the dots. You can put God on trial, but if you read the word, it's ultimately you that you're putting yourself on trial. The Levites pray, and they bring them to a hyper awareness of God's righteousness. God, you were patient with them. That's the true story. You were patient with them for many years, and your spirit warned them through the prophets, but they would not listen. You got to get the use and the they story straightened out here. You know, we take all the they stuff and put that on God, and we take all the God stuff and we put it on ourselves, and we got it all, we got it all perverted and upside down. You were patient, God. We, they, us wouldn't listen. You handed us over to the surrounding people. However, in your abundant compassion, you didn't destroy or abandon your people because you're a gracious and compassionate God. And so now, God, here we are again. Our God, great, mighty, and awesome, inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant. Here we are now. Don't look lightly on our hardships that have afflicted us. Don't look harshly on our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors or all your people from the days of the Assyrians to the present, there is an Assyrian captivity, there's a Babylonian captivity, now they're under Persian captivity, soon they'll be under Roman captivity. God, don't, like, like, don't look lightly on all this affliction. You are righteous concerning all that's happened to us because you've acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. The Levites pray in verse 34, our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law. They did not listen to your commands or the warnings you gave them. When they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them, 
when they were in the spacious and fertile land that you set before them, they would not serve you or turn away from their wickedness. You know, it's interesting that the Israelites are assembled and it's another point of reset for them. They are in a large and spacious city that they can fill with their families, with human flourishing, with the worship of God. Uh, at so many different points, we found ourselves with a, a fresh start, with a, a new spacious, large, gracious provision of God to roam and to do what he created us to be. Here we are today. Here we are today. And we're at this moment. We're slaves in the land you gave our ancestors. They've not been able to enjoy the fruit. They haven't been able to enjoy the goodness of this land, this gift. Here we are slaves. The abundant harvest that we come up with goes to the kings that you've set over us because of our sins. You know, we, uh, we wanted a king other than God, so we got what we asked for. And now we're, you know, they rule over our bodies. They rule over our livestock and livelihoods as they please. We're in great distress. Here we are again. Beggars at your table, wanting bread, wanting drink, wanting restoration and mercy. Here we are again. You know, reading these verses makes me wonder, what's it really take to get us to a point of awareness, hyper-awareness of our need for God's mercy and grace and faithfulness and, and power? How much trouble and distress has to unfold for us to wake up to the righteousness of God? I can tell you that in Nehemiah 9, this was one point in time that we can point to and say the people of God truly woke up. They didn't just build a wall. They woke up. And it's apparent that it was the spirit of God that was waking them up. And the spirit of God was stirring through the word of God to wreck, humili to wreck pride and to stir people to humility and repentance. The spirit was using the word of God to do that work. You know, we're distracted by many words. We're hyper aware of all the other. What's it take for us to be hyper aware of God's word? You know, we don't even open the word. We don't even familiarize ourselves with the word. Uh, they toss the word behind their back. Well, we may not even have, I mean, it's on the shelf. Where is it at? Is it opened up? Is it, is, are we letting the spirit use that story of God to transform us and bring us to a place of restoration and humility and, and being wrecked and repenting and confessing. How do you suppose the Levites capped this kind of a prayer off? Nehemiah 9.38. They pray something very profound. They say, you know, in view of all of this that we've been describing the supremacy of God, the faithfulness of God, the mercy of God, the right acting of the righteous God. In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement and we're putting it in writing on a sealed document and it's going to have the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. We're making a binding covenant. We're documenting. You know, that paper probably isn't worth the value of, of, of what it's printed. I mean, God knows, like, okay. You know, you're rededicating yourself, but I, I know you're still going to need more mercy. You know, God, you can think, like a parent, a little child, come. you know, I know you're still going to need my gracious, but I'm still going to have to send my son to die on that cross. Like, God knows this. But this is a moment where they have clarity and they're coming before God. And it makes me think about Romans 12, where for 12 chapters, 
In the book of Romans, Paul waxes eloquent about God's supremacy, God's faithfulness, his mercy, his righteousness. You know, Romans 1, uh, they were to... They, were, they, they had knowledge of God. They should have been thanking God and worshiping God, but they turned to their idols, and so God gave them over to their idols. And, and, and Romans 1, it describes how God keeps giving them over. Like five times he gives them over to what it is that they want more than God. And, and, and he's doing it so that they would be chasing and come back to God. And, and it's all about the faithfulness of God. And, and, and Paul lays out this whole history. And in Romans 12, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters... In view of the mercies, plural, in view of the mercies of God, same thing the Levites pray. In view of all of this, Paul says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be renewed by the Spirit of God giving you a hyper-focus on who God truly is and all of his faithfulness and supremacy and mercy and love and, and righteousness. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. This was a point in time in Romans when the people of God had a hyper-awareness of who God is and of his desire to be one with them and to reconcile them to himself at any cost, even the cost of his own son. They killed the prophets. They killed God's own son. And yet God still extended mercy to them. No matter what unforgivable thing they did, the, the invitation was still out that they come back to the heart of true worship, that they surrender their lives as living sacrifices before God. I'm wondering if this moment right now can be your moment of hyper-awareness of your need for God, of the mercies of God, the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God, the supremacy of God. Can this be a moment of healing for you? There is a, a passage that I mentioned in first service in 2 Corinthians 7 where the Lord appeared to Solomon at night. And he speaks these words to Solomon. And I know you, you probably have heard these. You're pretty familiar with them. But God tells Solomon, I have heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I shut the sky and there's no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. No matter what has transpired, no matter how dark the trouble or distress, if my people will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their evil, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive and heal their land. Isn't it really the... Forgiveness in the healing that we most seek today. God says, my eyes will now be open, my ears attentive to prayer from this place. I believe this is a place where God receives our prayers when we come to him. And may this be a moment, a pivotal moment 
not a but they moment, but a you God moment where God's mercy intervenes. May this be a but you God moment for us this morning as we continue in worship. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that you'd be stirring and working. We pray that right now in this place you would wreck our pride, wreck our self-righteousness, wreck our self-justifications, wreck our selfish pattern of life, and that you'd bring us face-to-face with your greatness, face-to-face with your faithfulness and your faithful character, face-to-face with your mercy. We pray that you would flip the false narrative that we've been buying into, that you've acted wrongly, and that's why our lives are the way they are. You've acted rightly, and you invite us into life and life everlasting. And there's no sacrifice too great a price for you to pay to make that a reality for us. You sacrifice your one and only son, that the power of sin, the power of death, which we confess we deserve, we don't throw dust on our heads, we take the bread, we take the wine to commemorate and celebrate the grace that you gave us once more. Father, may we accept your gift, your invitation, your gesture of kindness in Christ Jesus. And may this be a but you moment for us that transforms us. We pray that you lead us into this hyper-awareness of your goodness. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray, amen.